from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I just kept thinking about it. I mentioned it to my mom. I was like, I think I think I should go get tested. And she was like, no, no, you're fine. They'll find a donor. 90% scarred, less than 10% functioning, and less than half the size of a normal 20-year-old person's. Maybe a year later, somebody else posted something else on Facebook. Prescribed dialysis, and they initially had it with a port, and so I was prescribed three sessions per week for four hours per session. And then once I found out a match, the voice just kept coming back, like, you, you've got to give this guy your kidney. I was almost numb to, the, to people reaching out. This is going to be another one that just doesn't work. Exactly. I'm Sarah Fenske. You might think of COVID-19 as largely a problem for the lungs, but that's just not true. Transplant nephrologist Dr. Andrew Malone is an assistant professor of medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. He says many patients being treated in the ICU for COVID-19 have kidney injury or kidney failure, and that's beyond the impact the pandemic has had on patients with pre-existing kidney damage. People who have previously had normal kidney function and had severe COVID-19 infection have ended up with severe kidney failure and some even requiring long-term hemodialysis. And the exact mechanism as to how that is injuring the kidney itself, I think is still under investigation, um, whether it's a direct effect of the virus on the kidney or the fact that somebody has just become severely ill in general due to the COVID-19 infection with a knock-on effect to the kidney, that's also a possibility. And then the other group of patients who already have kidney disease, if they get a COVID-19 infection, their kidney disease is more likely to worsen or progress towards a more severe kidney disease or even requiring dialysis. And that is Dr. Andrew Malone of Washington University. Now, right now, about 100,000 patients in the U.S. need a kidney transplant. Dr. Malone said it's difficult to estimate how much or even if demand for kidney donors could increase due to the pandemic. It's possible. And that would put strain on an already taxed system. There's always been way more patients requiring a transplant than donors available on the deceased donor wait list and living kidney donation has helped to bridge that gap, but the gap still remains. So how have people with kidney issues handled this pandemic, and what happens to people after they get these transplants? Well, joining us now to tell his story is John Thomas, better known as JT. He's a kidney transplant recipient, a St. Charles resident, and part of the We're United for Kidney Health campaign. That's through the American Society of Nephrology. So JT, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. So, JT, you were perfectly healthy until the fall of 2011. When did you first have an inkling something was wrong? Well, as you mentioned, uh, you know, being a perfectly healthy person, you don't really take notice of those details. Mm-hmm. And I would say I first started noticing signs 
uh, near Thanksgiving where I was losing my appetite. And as a, as a young person... It's usually, a little unusual. Oh, yes, ma'am. And when you have... Normally, I have two or three servings, but I couldn't even finish my first plate. Hmm. And I had relatives saying, you, you know, you're looking a little thin, um, you know, some discoloration of their skin. Um, are you okay? And I thought nothing of it um, until that process of lack of appetite led me to lose 20 pounds in wow. a span of two months from just not eating. Wow. So at that point, you realized something was wrong. Somebody must have realized something was wrong. Absolutely. And as a young guy who is maybe a little bit too uh, prideful, uh, I did not really uh, take into consideration the advice from my parents to see a doctor. But eventually, I listened. And I'm so glad that I did because it was at that appointment that the uh, my doctor at the time said, hey, you look okay, but let's do a blood test just to see if there's any underlying things causing this issue. And it was then where I was diagnosed with focal segmental glomerulosclerosis after uh, being severely anemic, and it was a complete shock to the system. And so that's a very complicated phrase. I'm not even going to try to repeat what they diagnosed you with. What does that mean as far as your kidneys go? Oh yes, my apologies. I get so used to saying that uh, that um, that name that uh, the average person may not understand. Yeah. So it's normally known by FSGS. So it is a fancy term for scarring of the kidneys. It's where the tissues get scarred beyond repair. Okay. And so mine were ninety percent scarred, less than ten percent functioning, and less than half the size of a normal twenty-year-old person's. Wow. So how did physicians even begin to deal with something like this? I mean, did you end up on dialysis right away? Yeah. So that diagnosis was confirmed after having a biopsy and an ultrasound. So you're able to get a full picture of uh, what could be causing the issue. And so from there is whenever I was diagnosed or prescribed dialysis. And they initially had it with a port. And so I was prescribed three sessions per week for four hours per session. That's a lot of time, especially you're a 20-year-old kid. Yes, ma'am. And imagine doing that combined with going to school full-time, working part-time to pay for bills, having a social life, being active. It's a lot to handle for anybody, uh, not just somebody at my age. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a nightmare. Was there any end in sight? Like, here's what it's going to take to get off dialysis and, and you'll feel better again. Initially, there was no end in sight. And that's what you have to prepare for, unfortunately, uh, because the two options you have when you're on dialysis is waiting for somebody to uh, be a living donor or the transplant center may say, hey, we have a deceased donor that matches and, or is compatible to you, uh, let's get this process So going. basically, they can't fix your kidneys once they're at the point that yours were at. They needed a new set. Correct, yes. And so that's one of the important things about having early detection for kidney disease because not everyone who is affected by kidney disease has to be on dialysis. Mm. And there are ways to slow the deterioration of the kidneys, but when you're at the level that I was, it was beyond repair. Wow. And just as an otherwise healthy 20-year-old, that's so crazy. So you needed a donor. How did you even begin to address that? Well, as a young person who is relatively tech savvy and dabbled in social media, uh, that was the first thought that I had. 
Uh, I posted my circumstance um, on social media and I just hadn't asked. And this is a very big request from somebody. Yeah. Uh, which not, it's not an everyday conversation either. So I was very careful with the wording, but was able to also provide all of the necessary information, the contact information for uh, Barnes Jewish, where I eventually, spoiler alert, got the transplant. But um, at that point, it was it was up to the people seeing the post to act. And I just had to be patient and... Ooh, that's so hard, especially when you're young. But that actually leads us to our second guest here today, and that is Nikki Nickerson. Um, she lives in Spokane, Washington, and had known JT from before these kidney issues developed. Nikki, hi. Hello. So, Nikki, you saw JT's post, or did you hear about JT's post? How did this come to your attention? So, JT and I were, like... I would say acquaintances in high school. We had we're in the similar friend group, um, and the first thing that I heard about it was from one of his friends named Austin. It came across my feed on Facebook. I was just scrolling, you know, on Facebook. Probably should have been doing homework. <laughs> um, and I I remember I told my roommates I was like, "You guys, this guy I went to high school with is in kidney failure. That's insane! Like, what? Like, what a crazy thing to have happen at this time of our lives." And then I remember that happening, and then I thought nothing of it. Um, For a couple, I don't know, maybe a year later, somebody else, um, a girl named Andrea, posted something else on Facebook. And she was like, JT is still very sick, and he needs a donor. If you have this or this or this blood type, please consider getting tested. And that was where I was like, oh, I've been called out. (laughs) (laughs) You had that blood type. Because I had that blood type. And I remember, again, I told my – I was, like, scrolling on Facebook with my roommates. And I was like, you guys, I am a – like, I'm the right blood type. Um, I should just go get tested. And they're like, oh, my gosh, how sweet of you. But we're 20, you know, we're 21, however old I was at that time. And they were like, you so – like, kind of like, oh, so sweet. Like, let's just move on with our lives, you know. Um. And then the next time I was home in St. Louis that following summer, um, I was actually working at uh, WashU in a, in a lab there. And um, I was, you know, I was going to work there every single day. And I, I just kept thinking about it. And I had mentioned it to my mom. I was like, I think I think I should go get tested. And she's like, no, no, you'll you're fine. They'll find a donor. Um And I finally was like, nope, I'm going to get tested. And if I'm a match, then we'll go from there. If I'm not a match, then that's the end. I don't, like, I did what I could. Um, So I reached out to a friend. I actually didn't even know how to do, to get tested or anything like that. I really wanted to get tested without telling JT because I, you know, I didn't know if I, if, if, if I was a match, I didn't know if I was going to go through with it. Yeah. Um, you didn't want to get his so, hopes up. Yeah, exactly. So I reached out to a mutual friend and was like, Hey, um, I want to go get tested. Do you have any idea how I can do this? Don't tell JT. Um, so that was when I went and got tested and sure enough, we were a really close match. Like JT can probably tell you better, but, um, super, super great match. This was one of these matches that you'd been waiting for. Yes, and before uh, Nikki even, you know, all of this information about her behind the scenes, I'm putting that in quotes, work, I've had countless people, which I'm very fortunate and blessed to have offered to step up. And for whatever reason, you know, I can't control 
their results. I can't control if they're a match. Yeah. And so uh, whenever Nikki mentioned that she was being tested, I, just, I thought nothing of it. Yeah. I was almost numb to the to people reaching out. This is going to be another one that just doesn't work. Exactly, which I think is uh, smart that she didn't uh, say anything for so long. Yeah. Because if I would have had my hopes up for that long and it didn't pan out, yeah. I would have been just – I could still be sitting there today. How did you find out not only that she was a match, but that this person who, again, had been an acquaintance from high school, in many cases, people would have just avoided this thought and found a way to move on with their life. Nikki decided to do it. What what was going on in your head when you learned this? Oh, my gosh. Uh, tears of joy. Yeah. Um, one of the most significant images that I have is uh, – Whenever Nikki was doing her testing, she sent me a picture with just a, a post-it note that said June 24th on it. And when at this time, it was probably mid to late May, and I knew what was happening. I knew things were going well and progressing, and I could mark that on the calendar. So, Nikki, your mom had said, I don't think this is a good idea. And I'm sure there's plenty of people in your life that are like, you don't have to do this. Somebody else is going to step up. What do you think made you decide I'm going to do this. Like, I am willing to have my kidneys taken out. Yeah, I think um, it was a conversation. So my mom, actually, she's a physician's assistant, and she had actually, she used to work with the surgeon that performed the surgery. And so she has seen countless successful transplants. So she was like, don't worry, like, definitely somebody's going to come forward and, and it's going to work out for him, you know. And then it was an entire another year after that conversation that I was like, OK, I'm doing this. Um, I had a conversation with my dad and he was like, well, what if someday somebody what if someday you have a baby that needs this transplant? And I was like, but what if I don't? <laughs> Like, you yeah. know, mo do you know anybody else who's needed a kidney, like a kidney? Like, what if I don't? And this like guy just continues suffering or like dies just waiting for a kidney. And that was that conversation that was like, nope, I'm doing this. I, it's scary, but I'm just going to do it. Nikki, it sounds like there was just something in you that where you felt compelled, like you're kind of ignoring these naysayers, like you knew what you wanted that answer to be. And you just kept moving in that direction until finally there you are on the operating table. Yeah, I mean, I will say um, it was like a step by step decision. Like, honestly, the first the when I went in to get tested initially, in my mind, I was just trying to like shut up the voice in my mind that was like, you need to give this guy a kidney. I was like, no, you don't. You just need to get <laughs> tested. Like you just need to find out if you're a match. And then once I found out a match, the voice just kept coming back. Like you, you've got to give this guy your kidney. Um, so yeah, it wasn't like from the get go, I was like, nope, this is me. I'm the one for the job. I'm going to do this. Like this was kind of over like a year and a half, two year process of me just like battling with myself. Cause like, like I said, we were just acquaintances. It's not like I was watching my best friend go through this. Um, it was just this, this nagging at me like, okay, you're a match. Now what are you going to do? We're talking today to Nikki Nickerson. She donated her kidney uh, to an old friend from high school. Uh, that's J.T. Thomas, who's here in St. Louis. He's part of the We're United for Kidney Health campaign through the American Society of Nephrology. So, J.T., at this point, you've waited about a year and a half just doing this dialysis 12 hours a week. 
yes, ma'am. That's all I could do. Yeah. And hours of dialysis. Yes. And I was on dialysis for a total of two years, four months and 13 days. Not that you were counting. Oh, no, it gets even better because that's a total of 1,464 hours. And again, if you're counting, uh, that's a equivalent of 61 entire days. Wow. So that's two months of my life that was stolen from me um, by something that I had no control over. And for the people who offered to donate and fell through, no control. Yeah. And so it got tough because I got to watch my friends uh, graduate high school, uh, go to college, finish up their, you know, begin their careers, I should say, and while I was sitting in a chair. And it gets very tough when you compare yourself to others. And I was very guilty of it. And eventually I said, you know what, I'm prepared to sit here for the rest of my life, but I'm not going to waste away. I'm not going to, I'm still going to be here. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of those things where I thank God every day uh, that Nikki made that decision. And it, it is different. She's not a family member. Mm-hmm. We weren't best friends. Uh, so how do you approach that? And the fact that she stuck with it is just a miracle in itself. So, Nikki, what was that operation and recovery like? Was this really hard? Um, it wasn't so bad. Um, the operation, I think it was like four to six hours. And then um, I was in the hospital for, I think, three days. And then I was back to work two weeks later. Like, um, it definitely, I don't want to say it was like, oh, it's no big deal. But, um it, you know, it was an abdominal surgery. They did take um, that floating rib that, like most people have at the bottom of their rib cage on my right side, they took that out. So that was definitely a little bit painful. Um, but I, I mean, I was able to be walking around and the most, the most that I needed was just help, like getting out of bed and getting out of a chair for mm. the first couple of weeks. But then it was, it was fine. I didn't, I don't have any like long-term effects or anything like that from it. And JT, I mean, today you look so healthy. Are you still doing well with Nikki's kidneys today? Yes, ma'am. I am obsessed with taking care of this because she did make a permanent decision on my behalf that doesn't have a guarantee of how long it will last. And so I only have to do a couple things. I have to take my medications twice a day as prescribed by my transplant center. I get my labs drawn according to the schedule that they have prescribed. That way they monitor the health of my transplant. Um, I choose to eat well, I exercise regularly, and I enjoy life. And I think the combination of those things, which again are very simple, uh, but I am obsessed with this, taking care of this gift for her. You feel like you owe her this. (laughs) Absolutely, because this is the only way that I can fully thank her is to live this way and to live with this kind of uh, fervent attitude to care for this transplant and to help others. Uh, navigating the process. And you're also pushing for the Living Donor Protection Act. This would basically ensure that living organ donors have uh, family medical leave, that's FMLA protections. Uh, Nikki, is that something that that would have made a difference in your case? It would have made it a lot easier. Um, JT actually did a GoFundMe um, a couple months before the surgery, because I had just sort of confided in him, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to come to St. Louis. I live in Spokane, so I'm going to be paying rent in Spokane. I have to come to St. Louis for this surgery. I'm not going to be able to go back right away. And um, 
our kind of community came together and raised, I think it was like $3,600 just for my, to cover my bills. Mm. Um, but that, if we had some sort of like family medical leave or, you know, some, something like that would have been definitely a lot easier. So this bill, JT, has been introduced multiple times, and yet Congress hasn't acted on it. And we all love these feel-good stories about somebody sacrifices a body part to help somebody. I, every time I see them on the Today Show, I end up crying. I, why do you think Congress hasn't acted on this yet? I can't speculate on the exact reason, but maybe something that I would consider is that we're such a small uh, population. People so, that have living donors. Correct. Um, where this isn't maybe making enough news or the conversation really isn't there. Or maybe they are too far removed from the process or somebody who's affected by it, which I think with any bill that goes onto the floor or gets introduced, uh, you usually have people who advocate for it, which there have been a lot of people over the past couple of decades who have been advocating for for this to be passed just because how else can you honor somebody who's making that decision? Mm -hmm. How can you make it easier for them, remove those barriers of doubt and concern uh, to say, hey, you're doing something great. You're saving a life. This is the least we could do. Um, And so unfortunately, I did a little bit of research, and there are no representatives from Missouri co-sponsoring the bill currently, which is um, a shame because Barnes-Jewish is one of the largest transplant centers by volume in the region. And so I'm going to throw the gauntlet down to have any conversation of any representative and just to get their position and maybe have a conversation of the benefits, you know, not only financially from the government spending aspect, but from just the living experience that would hopefully maybe change some minds and Mm -hmm. gather their support as well. Maybe change some people's lives. Yes, ma'am. So, look, we are unfortunately out of time today. Um, Nikki, I want to pose the last question to you. We just have a few moments to answer it. But if somebody is on the fence, they're kind of hearing one of these these things in their heart telling them, maybe I should get my blood tested, maybe I'm a match, what would you say to them at this point? I say just do it. Just take it one step at a time. You don't have to make a huge decision at this exact moment. You can just take it one step at a time and you could save someone's life. You could literally change someone's life. Why not? Nikki Nickerson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And, and also thank you for this just remarkable act of generosity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Nikki. thank you. <laughs> There's a thank you from JT as well. And JT Thomas, um, I want to thank you for joining us too. Thank you very much. And uh, JT is a kidney transplant recipient. He's part of the uh, We're United for Kidney Health campaign. For more info on the transplant process, you can see four, that's the numeral four, kidneyhealth.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. 
St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.